Well, let's stand. Let's remain standing to read one one brief verse, and I want to finish out my series today on tough times, tougher God. How many of you believe God is tougher than your tough times? God is better than your hard times. Amen. Well, we're going to look at that today. I'm going to preach on grace over troubled waters. Grace over troubled waters. Look at Romans 5, verse 20. On the screen there is Romans 5, Romans 5, verse 20. I love this. It says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But read the next part with me. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Let's try that again. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That tells you that no matter how hard it is around you, God's grace is stronger. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word today. Bless it to our hearts. Teach us. Help us to, Lord God, grab hold of your word and walk in it. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell them God's grace is tougher. Well, I'm thankful for the Word of God. I'm thankful for that verse. And the last few weeks we've been looking at, though there are tough times, God is tougher, as in stronger, as in better, as in mightier. And no matter what you're walking through, God can take you through it to the other side. Our God is an ever-present help in the time of trouble. He does not stand off on some distant Uh, galaxy and look into your problem and say, well, that's just too bad. But no, God steps into your problem with you and God's presence is there. His strength is there. And we've seen that God provides in tough times. And we've also seen that God guides in tough times. And I want you, church, to expect God to guide you and expect God to provide for you. He can't deny you any more than he can deny himself. And he will guide you. He will speak to you and say, this is the way, walk ye in it. Or he will guide you when you don't even know it. But God will guide you. Now today I want to look at how God's grace abounds in tough times. God's enabling, God's presence, his empowering, his strengthening abounds in tough times. God actually moves more mightily in tough times than he does easy times. My experience has been that God moves more mightily when it seems like you can't take another step. That's when you look back and say, wow, he was there more than he was there at any other time. He was carrying me. He was keeping me. Can I tell you that I believe in and walk with a God who is ever-present? who is real, who cares about the smallest problems I experience, who speaks to uh, seemingly insignificant issues to others, but it matters to him because it matters to you. God sees what you need. He knows what you need. He knows what you're facing. He has already dispatched the answers to your problems. God is ever present. And I thank God. Uh, Here's another version. I love this version. Philip's modern English version says, though sin is shown to be wide and deep, his grace is wider and deeper still. Though the problems are wide and deep, God's grace is wider and deeper still. Satan 
never trumps God. God is always one step ahead of the enemy. Where sin is dark, grace shines brighter still. Where times are tough, God's grace is tougher still. Do you believe that, church? I want you to know that God's grace is stronger than your weakest moment. There is no valley so deep that His grace cannot reach you. I'm here to testify there's not a valley where He can't find you. There's not a valley that can hide itself from God. And if you're down in a deep, dark valley, God knows about it, and He's already got His angels in that valley with you, and He'll find you in that valley. There is no lostness so profound that His grace can't find you. No fire so hot that His grace can't deliver you. There's no problem so complex that His grace can't solve it for you. I mean, where sin abounds, grace. Everybody say with me, grace. Oh, I thank God for amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, so blind, so pitifully blind, so tragically blind. But now I see. Why? Because grace came into that darkness. I tell you, I thank God for His amazing grace. God's amazing grace is the devil's worst nightmare and the saint's greatest joy. God's grace frustrates our enemy's best laid plans, ruins his most diabolical designs, destroys his evil intent, and wrecks his most sinister traps. God's grace is here today to cancel satanic assignments. See, the devil's got a plan for you. It's to destroy you, ruin you, deceive you, wreck you, carry you into a godless eternity. But God has a plan. It is to bless you, save you, deliver you, redeem you, heal you, pick you up, dust you off, give you a future, and give you a hope. And my God's grace is greater than the devil's assignments. I'm believing God to step into some lives today and cancel what the devil had planned. The devil means evil for you, but God's going to turn it for good. I'm here to tell you today and serve notice on the satanic assignments released against your family, against your money, against your mind, against your soul, against your body, that satanic assignments are canceled by the blood and by the name and by the work of Christ. Where sin abounds, grace so much more super abundantly abounds. Right when Satan thinks he's won the day, grace breaks through the black clouds of despair every time, and the sun rays of hope and life deliver his prisoners. God's grace is knocking on your heart today. I'm telling everybody by radio. Somebody's driving in a car right now, and you feel like your life is over. I feel a prophetic moment right now to tell you that your life is not over, and God has a plan. Don't do anything drastic. Look up and call on Him. He is going to save you. Amazing grace is reaching into your car. You may need to pull off the side of the road right now and pray. It is not over. I cancel that assignment in the name of Jesus.
I want you to remember today that where sin and darkness and perplexity and despair abound, grace much more abounds. Thank God for His amazing grace. Think of where you were just a few years ago. And look at you now, sitting in church on a Sunday morning when the cowboys kick off at noon and you cared enough to come here instead. That tells me you've been delivered, friend, because something better than a touchdown is going to happen in this place today. Now, sometimes I like to look back in history and I like to see where God has moved in days gone by because we have a tendency to look at our day and go, it's never been worse. It's never been worse than this. This is as bad as it gets. Oh, it's just rough times right now. Well, do you know that when you look back through history and you see what God has done in His church in days gone by, it'll strengthen you for today. For many times, it's been bad. And you always see that grace won the day. No matter how bad it was, grace won the day. God moved when it didn't look like there was any hope left. I stand before you as a preacher today who believes that grace is moving right now in our day. And God intends to capitalize on the tragedies all around us and the darkness that seems to be closing in. God's grace is afoot. God's grace is moving. And God has a plan. You start back with the early church. And you see the early church was born in persecution. The early church was born in the heat of persecution. And it only got hotter with time. They were threatened. They were whipped. They were imprisoned. They were hunted. They were martyred, persecuted, ridiculed, mocked. Peter, Paul, and almost all the other apostles were executed as enemies of the state. As were large numbers of converts who said yes to Jesus Christ. They gave their life. The Roman Empire came down on them like an iron hand. You need to understand that behind us and pushing us forward and making a circle like this possible today is because in part of the blood of martyrs who gave their lives so we could be free. The manner in which these men and women in the first century who launched the early church, the manner in which they were killed, was often very harsh. Crucifixion. They were crucified like their Lord. Beheading. Being burnt to death. And being torn apart by wild animals in the amphitheater while thousands watched them martyred for their faith and cheered as they were eaten alive. They gave their life. They gave their all. Their blood soaked the ground. And it looked bad. And yet, God's grace was moving. The first church body was birthed in Jerusalem. It grew to an enormous size. Some say 100 to 200,000 members strong. It was a mega church. But the fires of persecution struck it hard. The chief leadership, Peter and John, were arrested. John, uh, James, John's brother, was thrust through with a sword and martyred for his faith. It's as if you heard this week that I had been arrested for preaching the word. 
And some of our church staff have been arrested for preaching the word. And we were in jail for preaching Jesus, which is not so far-fetched as it used to be. If you hear that I'm in there, just pray they get coffee to me. I say that, and a little humor here, but the forces of the enemy are gathering against the church, and I want you to know that. That's why I want you to understand the power of amazing grace. I've preached since I was 18 years old. I'm 55. I've been preaching 37 years, and I've never seen the heat come on the church like it seems to be coming on it now in America. Who would have ever believed it? Two weeks ago, in a church in Michigan, 4,000 people were gathered. The preacher had just led his congregation in a united prayer. He'd been the pastor for 25 years. And as soon as he finished his prayer, suddenly 30 people stood up who had been planted throughout the congregation. 30 radical, militant homosexuals stood up began to shout blasphemies, rolled a, a banner down from the balcony that said Jesus was gay. They began to shout obscenities and shout blasphemies, took over the service, petrified the children. Nobody knew what to do because nobody knew that it was coming. And I read about this. And I thought, that's the kind of spirit that's beginning to move across the West. But I've got to tell you something, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Grace does much more abound. I said, grace does, I tell you, we need to learn amazing grace, how sweet the sound. There's no devil that can stand against grace. There's no flesh that can stand against grace. There's no evil that can stand against grace. God's Grace is mighty, powerful. It is sweeping and it's moving right now. Even though the leadership had been arrested and even though they came in under such persecution, the silver ray of grace broke through the dark clouds. The first missionary journey was launched and the gospel broke loose on the Gentiles and we are the recipients of that to this day. The Jerusalem church was scattered because of the persecution. Yet, everywhere they went, new churches sprang up. And so it was a good thing that they were scattered because then the gospel covered the entire known world. And you know what it shows us? That early church experience? That though sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And for every devil that attacks you, there are three angels on your side. You, you are the winner and not the loser, the head and not the tail, above and not beneath. Blessed in the storehouse, blessed in the field, blessed in your going out and blessed in your coming in. Forgive me if I'm a little bit excited today, but I believe in the power of amazing grace. Now let's just jump ahead a little bit into church history, 15 centuries. You jump ahead about 15 centuries and we see a church that's lost its way. Rather than serving the people and winning the lost, she has become glutted. Glutted with power, more political than spiritual. The Roman Catholic Church of that day changed the Bible to the pulpits. 
The common people do not have the Word of God. It has been kept from them. You have a Bible with you today, most of you. If you had lived in that day, you could not have gotten a Bible. You wouldn't have had a Bible. The priests forbade the people from reading it even if they'd wanted to. This time period is called the Dark Ages, and it was dark for a reason. Because spiritually, it was ignorant. Spiritually, the people did not have the revelation or the comfort of the Scriptures. Spiritually, they were dependent on a church that was teaching them religion and not life. A church that had gotten to the place of appointing kings instead of sending missionaries. A church that had backslidden away from its call. False teachers traveled through the little towns and the hamlets of Europe where the ignorant peasantry lived. And they came with a message to get money. Matter of fact, I found a little poem that they would always quote when they would go into these little German towns in the 1500s and they would have a cup with them. And I brought a cup and I brought, I want to show you what it was like. A man named Johann Tetzel, who was one of the main leaders sent out by the Roman Catholic Church of that day. And I'm not slamming Catholics, I'm talking about medieval times. But he was sent out and he would go into these little towns and hamlets where they didn't have the Word of God, didn't know the Word of God. And he would take up what's called indulgences. And the indulgences said, when your coins clink into the bottom of the cup, your loved ones are delivered from purgatory. Well, A, there was no purgatory. Because when you die, that's it. Nobody buys you out, prays you out, helps you out, assists you out. Where you go when you die is all you have. That's why you better get right now. You better get your heart right now. Because there's no coming out. But Johann Tetzel would walk into these towns and he'd be, he'd be doing this just like some of the fundraising we see in our day. Send in your check and your runaway child's going to come home. Send in your check and you're going to get healed. Can I tell you something today, church? You don't have to buy a blessing. It's already been paid for you. It's already been paid for you. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed somebody to wash my sin away. And so, but here he would. And uh, off in the shadows was a little German monk named Martin Luther. And he saw him taking up this money like this. And he said, there's something wrong with that. And he got mad. And he began to get into the Word of God. And the Word of God suddenly came alive to him one day. And you know the verse that jumped out? The verse originated in Habakkuk. Paul picked it up in Romans. It's one verse. The just shall live by faith. And he said, well, I thought the only way to get to heaven was faith mixed with works. The works that the church is telling me I've got to do to get saved. But he had a personal revelation. He woke up. Fire dropped into his bosom. The fire of the Holy Ghost. He said, this is wrong. I don't have to pay my way in. I don't have to work my way in. I don't have to do any of that. He paid the price. The blood is the only currency that gets you into heaven. And when you go to heaven's gates, God doesn't want to know what you did. He wants to know what you believed. He wants to know if you put your faith in His Son because the only currency that unlocks the door to heaven is the blood, the blood of Jesus, the crimson stain that flowed down that cross. That's the only currency that's going to get you into heaven. 
So Martin Luther, Martin Luther went and he wrote down 95 protests, 95 points of protest. And he, he wrote them down and he nailed them to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And it caused a fire. The peasants began to come and, and, and others began to come and read it. And they learned what it said. The ones that couldn't read learned what it said. How this man, this, this monk, this Martin Luther was exposing the fallacies of the church of that day. And that's why you are called a Protestant because you came from protestants. You came from people who were protesting. Hey, it's all right to protest for a good thing. I'll protest all day long for the blood of Jesus. I mean, I'll stand for the blood. I'll die for the blood. I'll preach for the blood. So Martin Luther started what we call the Reformation. And the Reformation swept Germany and swept Europe. And you and I are recipients of the blessings of that move of God way back in the 1500s. Though sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Can I have an amen today? Amen. amen. Well, you guys seem excited. Are you guys excited? Amen. Now we're going to jump ahead again to the 1700s. And just for a moment, I want to look at where we came from. We came from England. And I'm going to tell you what happened in England in the 1700s. Let's jump ahead again because it was dark. It was dark in England in the 1700s. The poverty of London had reached dire proportions in the 1700s. Terrible poverty. Starving people were everywhere. And because of it, crime and prostitution where it has historic levels, there were shortages of coal and shortages of bread. Listen to this. Irish children from the age of 5 to 14 worked in workhouses for 10 hours a day, 6 days a week. Can you imagine, Mom, Sending your child of five years old to a workhouse? There was no childhood. There were no sweet memories. No photographs. No family gatherings. They worked night and day sending their children off just so they could survive, so they could have something to eat. That's England in the 1700s. Crime went off the charts. Highwaymen roamed the roads, robbing the wealthy. In those days, the poor became so desperate that many of them turned to crime. And you know what England did in response? The death penalty was instituted to a horrific level, extending even to those convicted of minor thefts. Like, and I've got historical proof of this, seamstresses stealing a spool of thread or the theft of fruit from a market. Thieves and desperate people like that by the hundreds were convicted of property crimes and hung in 1700s England. Your lifespan was somewhere in the 30s. You didn't have medicine, didn't have health care. It was dark. It was really dark. Things got so bad for the working class that insurrections and mutinies and urban riots were commonplace in 1700s England. And what about the church? Where was the church during this time? What was the church doing when there was such a desperate culture out there? 
One could hardly find a place where even 10% of the population attended church services. The church had become institutionalized and was spiritually dead. It was dark. It was dark spiritually. It was dark uh, financially. It was dark in the culture. It was dark. But grace, again, reached out over troubled waters, just like the grace is reaching now. How did it reach? Well, around this time, there was a young college student named George Whitfield. He was reading a devotional book at college about the Bible. And while he was reading, he received a life-changing revelation just like Luther did. A life-changing revelation. And he wrote about it, and this is what he said. God soon showed me that true religion was a union of the soul with God. And Christ being formed within us. And he said, this ray of divine light was instantaneously darted in upon my soul. And it set him on fire. The Bible says God makes his ministers a flame of fire. This revelation rocked his soul, rocked his world, rocked his life. He soon entered the ministry. And on the day of his ordination, he preached that a person must be born again if you're ever going to see this kingdom of God. And you know what happened? His opponents complained that his preaching had driven 15 people crazy. And you know what the person said who had brought him to his church? He said, I hope their craziness lasts till next Sunday. Give me more crazy people like this. See, when you get on fire for God, our culture says you're crazy. I say you're normal. When you're a fanatic for him, the culture says you're nuts. I say you're normal. Normal Christianity is red-hot, devil-stomping, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying faith. God doesn't create old dried-up prunes. He doesn't create people walking around with furrowed brow and no smile and no joy. God will put fire in your soul, a skip in your step, a gleam in your eye, a smile on your face, and He'll give you a reason to live. That's my God. That's my Christ. Well, Whitfield said, they've kicked me out of the church. I'll go to the field. And he went and he found some coal miners. And I talked about this a few weeks ago, but i got to talk about it again. Because these people were not allowed in the church because of the way they smelled. These people were kept out of the church because of their odor. They had coal-blackened faces. They could not read. They were illiterate. They were in ignorance. They lived into their 30s and died because of disease of the lungs from being in the coal mines. And Whitfield went and talked to the sophisticated. And they didn't want to hear him talk about being born again. So he said, okay, I'll go to the fields. And it started a revolution. He went down and he found a coal mine. And he said down into the coal mine... I'll be preaching the gospel in this field today at 2 o'clock. All historical accounts say when he came back, thousands of coal-blackened faces were waiting for him. And he lifted up this golden voice that could be heard in a crowd of twenty to 30,000 people with no audio accompaniment at all. And he said, you must be born again. And they listened in rapt attention. These poor, 
people who needed God. And you know what he wrote about it? He said, I was moved by the white gutters made by their tears down their black cheeks. Oh, church, listen to me. Don't let the devil fool you and tell you nobody wants to hear about your Jesus. Because they do. They're dying out there. They're starving out there. They're famished out there. They're looking out there. They're searching out there. Your neighbor, your friends, your co-workers, your children, your parents. Well, the more he preached in the fields, the more the church shut him out until finally the Anglican pulpits were all closed to him. Isn't that something? The church kicking out the one person winning souls. <laughs> and so you know what he did? He made it full-time job, full-time work, full-time labor to go to the fields. And it got to where he would go to a town of 15,000 and 20,000 people would show up to hear him because they came from other places. Then he made 13 trips across the Atlantic to preach in America's early colonies. 13 trips he made in a ship of that day was not the love boat. But he came 13 times and it got to where... He was, and I want you to remember this, and I'm an evangelist, a Christian evangelist, was the first American celebrity. Not Brad Pitt. Not Angelina Jolie. Not George Clooney. But there was a Christian evangelist was the first famous man on this land. Hallelujah. He became a legend in his own time. And history tells us he died when he was 55 years old, my age. He preached so hard, he would walk off behind trees and throw up blood. He preached so hard, he exhausted his body at a young age. He preached himself to death. But because of him, American evangelism was born. So, while sin abounded, grace much more abounded. For while they were starving and in all this crime, hundreds of thousands got saved from the preaching of Whitfield and the Wesley brothers. Give the Lord a hand of praise. I'm so glad to know that there was a famous evangelist on American soil first. Now, Let's jump ahead once more to modern-day America, 2008. Now we're going to talk about us for a minute. An entire generation of our children have been short-circuited into eternity by abortion. It is an insidious evil. Wrong is celebrated and right is condemned in America. Who would have ever thunk it? Who would have ever thought it? Who would have ever imagined it even 50 years ago? Christians are mocked while perversion is applauded. Right is wrong and wrong is right. Up is down and down is up. Straight is deemed crooked and crooked deemed straight. If you're straight, you're weird. If you're crooked, you're normal. We are hapless and amazed passengers on a train. We're not far ahead. The bridge is out. And three quarters of us can't even see it. 
But I have a hope. I said, I have a hope. I said, I have a hope today. I hope you came to listen because I came to preach. The word is fire on my heart. I want you to hear it now. My hope is where sin abounds, grace. Where sin is abounding, where wrong is right and right is wrong and up is down and down is up, where that is going on, grace is much more abounding. Now I'm going to tell you some things we can know real quickly. Three things we can know. Here's what we can know. Right now, God's grace is moving. It's moving in this dark land. It's moving where it looks like there's no hope. It's moving like it was moving in medieval Europe. It's moving like it was moving in 1700s England. It's moving. God's grace is moving. And I want to give you a word today. Focus on that. Don't focus on the defeats. Don't focus on the negative. Focus on God's grace. Because I tell you what, we're about to have a grace ride. We're about to have a grace ride. I don't know what you're riding, but I'm riding grace. We're about to see grace moving in this country. We're about to see the churches that are preaching the Word of God are going to dramatically increase. People are sick and tired of Christianity light. They want the Word of God. So say with me, God's grace is moving. Second thing you need to know is God's eye is searching. God's eye is searching. You say, what do you, what do you mean, Pastor Jeff? His eye is searching for yielded people willing to be vessels for His grace. Grace dispensers. People who carry grace around with them all the time and dispense it in the lives of people. He's looking for willing people. Can I ask you a question today? Are you a willing Christian? Are you willing to take some heat for Jesus? Are you willing to be, uh, be made fun of a little bit, maybe get some mocking, maybe some ridicule? Are you willing to get out there and be a dispenser of grace because God's eye is searching? Listen to what God said. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Oh, I tell you, church, our God is just itching to show himself strong. Our God, his eye. You wonder what God's doing? You ever look up and I wonder what God's doing. Here's what he's doing. His eye is looking. His eye is scanning this audience. His eye is scanning the country, and he's looking. What is he looking for? He's looking for the Isaiahs, because the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and said, Who shall I send? And who will go for us? And he said, Here am I. Send me. Well, Pastor, who am I? He doesn't have much to send with me. Don't tell me that. When I gave my heart to Christ, I was a high school dropout, long-haired, skinny-as-a-toothpick hippie. But he touched me. And all I said was, here am I, send me. I availed myself to him. Don't be so busy you can't serve God. Get out there and give your life to him. God's eye is searching. Can you say it with me? God's eye is searching. He's searching. And now, here's the last thing to remember. God's patience is waiting. Listen to Peter. He isn't really being slow about his personal return, even though it sometimes seems that way, but he is waiting. 
God is waiting. Well, what is God waiting for? It says, for the good reason that he's not willing that any should perish. And he's giving more time for sinners to repent. Now, can I tell you something, church? Jesus is coming back. He's coming back probably sooner than you imagine. The day will certainly come when about 30 to 60 million people are going to disappear in North America. It'll be one of the most traumatic events, if not the most traumatic in the history of the entire world. God will give His Word and Christ will blow the trumpet and He will come again, but it will not be seen by the world. It will be the rapture of the church. It will be invisible to the lost. It will happen in a flash, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The word moment comes from a Greek word, atomos, and it's where we get the word atom. And it means a time so short and so fast you can't split it. He will come. People will be driving, flying, talking. A man and woman, Jesus said, will be in bed. One will end up missing and the other one wake up and they're gone. Two will be working together. You'll turn to say something to your coworker, and they'll be gone. Jesus said that, not me. Jesus said that. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the sound of the last trump, the dead in Christ will rise. And those who are alive and remain will be caught up. That means seized out. Snatched out in a moment. And we will be in the clouds and there will be a reunion with those who have died and gone before us. Our spirits will be joined to our bodies again. Our bodies will be glorified. And we will go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will come back when He comes in His second coming. I want you to know this is what is happening. One of the biggest jobs the Antichrist has will be explaining where all those people went. I'm telling you, it's time to get right with God. And I want you to remember now, God's grace is moving in tough times. God's eye is searching in tough times. And God's patience is waiting in tough times. And grace will win the day in tough times. Can we stand together? You know, people say, you really believe, Pastor Jeff, that there's going to be a rapture of the church? Well, if you believe the words of Christ, do you? Well, how will he do that? Well, Enoch was walking along one day in the Old Testament, and suddenly the Bible says he was not. Elijah was walking along with Elisha, and all of a sudden, he was taken up into heaven with Elisha watching. The same God that created the worlds can easily say, come up. Church, you have a message, and you know people who need the Lord. I want to encourage you, bring them to church. Hand out our radio cards or our church cards. Open up the conversation with a card. I give those cards away 
Maybe more than anybody I know about. I give them everywhere I go. Kathy and I, we were um, looking at Hondas. We have a 99 Honda. How many of you know Hondas last? But we were thinking about maybe another one. We didn't do it, but we were thinking about it. We went to a Honda dealership. I walked up to the, the guy that was selling the cars, or he walked up to me. You know how they do. He walked right up to me. And I said, yeah, I'm looking, I wanted to look at Hondas. He said, what is your name? I said, Jeff Wickwire. He said, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. You, I listen to you all the time before I know it. I'm having a love fest on the Honda parking lot. He says, I listen to you all the time. I can't believe it, you. And he calls to his manager. He says, my manager listens to you all the time. And the manager comes out, and we're shaking hands, and we're having a bigger love fest. Then here comes this couple looking at cars. And they say, they say, hey, can somebody help us find a car? Because we were having our love fest on the parking lot. Nobody was helping them. He says, yeah, but we're just saying hi to this guy. Well, who is he? They said, they said, oh my gosh, we can't believe it's you. We listen to you all the time. Now we've got a church on the Honda parking lot. And so I realized right there how hungry people are. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word today. Lord, thank you that in tough times, grace wins the day. Thank you, Lord, that your eye is searching and you're going to find many in this place. If you can say today, here am I, send me, would you lift up your hand and say, Lord, let my life count for God. Here am I, send me. Lord, we just thank you for a church that's going to be used to the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him a hand of praise while all the care leaders are coming down. Come down, care leaders.